Well, welcome back to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and as usual, it's a real pleasure to have your company. Now, today, I'm going to be following up a theme here, uh, and I'm unashamedly going to do more podcasts on this theme as well, because it is worldwide, it's universal, it's always uh, targeting the vulnerable, and I always want to talk to people who've got some ideas about how to combat it. Today, that's going to be Brian Iselin. And Brian's an, an Australian ex-soldier, ex-special agent, uh, but he's the founder four years ago of uh, Slave Free Trade. Welcome to the program, Brian. Thank you very much, Dave. Great to be here. Okay, now let's go straight into it. Eh? Slave Free Trade, I believe you started it in 2016. Now, um, why did you start it and what's its mission? Slavery trade really comes, I started it as a result of pretty much everything else that's gone on in my life in the, in the years previous. So starting out as a soldier and then a federal agent, specialising in counter-organised crime, was posted abroad, started coming across human trafficking cases while I was in that, in that capacity. Australian government said, leave it alone. I said, no, go to hell. And so I resigned and started focusing on this. So I've been working on human trafficking for almost 20 years now. And uh, uh, human trafficking, as you you may, or listeners may or may not know, is one of the, of the several forms of uh, conditions that we call modern slavery. Uh, that's human trafficking, forced labour, child labour, and slavery and servitude. Um, and so I, I've been focusing on this for, for almost 20 years. been doing operations in almost 50 countries now in those 20 years, doing things like police training, surveillance, uh, rescues, uh, intelligence operations, and the like. Okay. Uh, and, 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 and largely, you could define everything that I've been doing as supply side. So that is, these, these things that we've been doing are mopping up spilled milk, right? The, the slavery has occurred and we are rescuing, or the slavery has occurred and we are arresting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet nothing was changing. The numbers are getting bigger. More and more people are being enslaved. Those actions are, taking, are having no effect. So I started Slavery Trade to try and switch things up uh, and, and uh, work on what, it's generically called the, the demand side of the equation. That is, mm-hmm. we, the people who can change things by our decisions. Right. Let's dig a bit deeper. Um, I, on the preventative side or the demand side, as you call it, right, which is obviously yeah. where you've positioned yourself right now. In other words, it's it's not just awareness raising. It's, it, it, it's trying through all methods that you know, both, uh, well, both old fashioned and contemporary to um, combat this. Now, Give us, could you just give us some examples of um, what could be considered um, slavery within the context of, of, of what you're trying to sort of work against? Well, go, going back to my very first forced, forced labour case, which was also a child labour case, it was a 12-year-old boy. He was a, a boy from Cambodia, trafficked to Thailand, put on a fishing boat and sent out catching prawns. Uh, and he, with two of his friends at the end of the season, when the boat was full, they were just shot in the head and dumped overboard. Uh, the captain then went into port, like all the other boats in the fishery at the same time, and uh, sold their prawns, and nobody was any the wiser. And it struck me in the ensuing investigation that those prawns from that boat ended up, went through many, many layers, many, many places to get to where they ended up being sold to consumers, but they ended up being sold to consumers in supermarket freezers in Europe. And it struck me right then, 
that there's this massive blindness to what's going on. Right from the very first port of sale, nobody, the, the entire supply chain or value chain was blind to the conditions under which they were caught. And that carried right through to the consumer standing in the, in the Carrefour in Paris, looking at the freezer and, and seeing two bags of prawns or five bags of prawns in front of them, different brands, and not being able to distinguish anything about the background. Okay. And it's funny that this blindness has to be fixed, right? Because if we can fix this blindness, if we can give that consumer and standing in front of the freezer something to act upon, provoke a certain reaction, which is to buy a good one, right? Buy a slave-free one. If we can provoke that behavior, it's a micro-action, and, and then we just have to multiply it millions of times, right? Globally, micro-action, micro-action. And it literally then becomes the butterfly's wings and it creates a tsunami in the value chain and changes the way things get done. Okay, that's a particularly horrific kind of um, introduction to you, you know, at, your, at the beginning of your career, as you said, you know, in this, in the sense of this has actually involved killing children. And, you know, so somebody must have missed them. Somebody must have known about it. So there's the whole other questions that come into play there as well. And I rather suspect that it's not stopped until and, and even now and, and, and various other things involved with it as well. Now that could be corruption or it could be just stupidity or it could be just that the, the scale of things is just so huge that people yeah. can't keep up with it. I, I, I'm guessing the latter, but you tell me. 152 million children in child labour right now. Okay, okay. Are we talking, you, you mentioned somewhere on the Pacific Rim there, but I mean, I'm guessing you're talking worldwide. Yeah, I mean, the, the, most of the child labour has a, has, has a tendency to be at the bottom end of global commodity chains, mm-hmm. uh, and they tend to all start in uh, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Africa, Southern, uh, Latin America, uh, and Central Asia. So... Mm-hmm. You, you can say that most global, wherever most global supply chains, commodity chains start, that's where the most child labor occurs. And of course in developing economies where uh, children are more uh, vulnerable to being pushed into labor anyway. And, and just to clarify also for your listeners, when I'm talking about child labor, I'm not talking about, you know, when I was 12, I was working in my parents' bookstore. That's not child labor. Child labor has to have a note of exploitation. If, it, if there's no exploitation, then it's not child labor. So 152 mm-hmm. million cases of child labor, exploitative use of children in workplaces. Okay. Just, yeah. No, no, right. I mean, it's massive. Got it, got it. Massive. I mean, the exploitation of children is sadly a millennia old um, activity. But yeah. from what you say in terms of the kind of uh, the, the, the slave-free trade targets, I mean... Southern Hemisphere produces the slave labor. Northern Hemisphere consumes the goods. That sounds a bit, I mean, I'm sure it's not exactly like that, but that sounds roughly it's what a, you were it's saying. It's a simplification, but it's accurate. Yeah. So up, to, up to a point, yeah. I mean, my daughter is sitting at the dining table, my nine-year-old daughter is sitting at the dining table in a T-shirt that is almost certainly made by a child younger than her. And to me, that's obscene. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and that, that simple fact motivates me. Nobody's going to question the obscenity of this as far as our, my listeners are concerned. I, I think what we need to do now is dig a little bit deeper, if that's okay with you, Brian. I think let's have a think about some of the other products that you might be um, worth a second look. Let's put it that way, if you're just the ordinary yeah. consumer. Yeah. 400, at least 400 product groups globally uh, touched by modern slavery. 77% of businesses have slavery in their supply chains. 
Mm. So we're talking, and, and, and there's a particular predominance of these global commodity chains that I talked about. So coffee, cocoa, sugar, bananas, pineapples, tomatoes, uh, olives, olive oil, uh, palm oil. I could go on and on, right? No, 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 I get you, but listen, let me interrupt you a second, because what I thought you said before was really the the target issue, which is, yeah, all these products have got slave labor involved with them, but when you're faced with these products in the supermarket, there are some products that might have been more ethically sourced, right? So effectively, it's a question of how do you discern what's well done and what's involved slavery? That, that's yeah. the big the big issue, isn't it? Yeah, and I think there's a real problem there because people are being asked to evaluate on things they can't possibly know. Uh, and so if you look at most of the labels that exist on products now, none of them are a comprehensive human rights standard. Hmm. So uh, let me, let's just look at uh, uh, B Corp, for example. That is not a human rights standard. It does not tell you that the company that provides you whatever service they're providing uh, uh, doesn't have human rights abuses in their workplace or in their supply chain. It doesn't tell you that at all. Um, if you look at fair trade, you you know it's an equal profit standard, not a human rights standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it it came into being for good reason in the in the seventies and eighties for as a concept for equalising this this global imbalance of, of profit sharing. Uh, unfortunately, it hasn't really done that very well. You know, there's lots of criticism of fair trade. Having said that, it's brought real consumer attention to the issue. There is a standard in there around child labor, but the standard behind it, or the, 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 the fundamental way, the way they know about how the standard is maintained, is, a, is an old model of audit and certification. That is, they send somebody out to a percentage of the supply chain every couple of years and have a look. Uh, and on the basis of that, they call everything clean. And they know they're coming. And that's just not how the world works, right? You can't do that. Yeah, it's not a sufficient, yeah. it's not a sufficiently robust model. So you can't actually, looking at a fair trade label, you can say it's, it's possible that they have, uh, human rights respect, all human rights respected, a comprehensive human rights respect in the workplace. But it's just, it's actually just as likely that they don't. They've got, uh, they're part of the equal profit scheme and there's a child labor standard in there that a percentage of those businesses adhere to. So the, the real problem is the rigor behind the labels that you see on the shelf. They're one dimensional labels. The consumer can't interact with them and most consumers don't even really understand what's behind them. So, and I think, you know, this is a, this is a modern technological age. Why are we still relying on a 1D stamp on a packet that we can't understand and know about? People, I think, now and increasingly want to interrogate stuff. They want to investigate. They want to say, well, that's your plan. Show me the proof. And that's, so that's one of the reasons around slavery trade. The, the, you know, it's a very big, a very big piece of what we want to do is advanced tech so that our logo and label will never be just a one-dimensional stamp on a product. You can always interact with the supply chain of the product and see live data. Okay, let me ask you a question then, because uh, a quick a quick story, because and I wondered if it's relevant in what you're talking about. Um, quite a few years ago, I, I got involved with a, a UK police force to do with um, homestays, you know, and school exchanges, that, sort yeah. of the, that area of work, and which a couple of police officers were funded by the Home Office here to go around the world actually looking at 
protection of homesteads because there's no regulation on them in terms yeah. of whatever. And then we came back with a thousand, easily a thousand cases, you know, ranging from sort of good to terrible in terms of yeah. what happened to children when they were in homesteads. Now, that was the Youth and Student Travel Organization that was sort of primarily behind that. And they have, and, well, many, no, well, the parent, the parent kind of organization worldwide, and they have a, a, an annual kind of one week conference, you know, somewhere in the world. We decided with the police, uh, we went out to, it was in Bangkok this time, but we went out and took a stand at their conference for a week in terms of actually, and at first we were treated with utmost suspicion because they thought we were trying to undermine and ruin their business by actually yeah. suggesting of nefarious activities going on and, you know, unregulation yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. by the end of the week, we had persuaded them to actually write into their regulations so much more protective um, activity um, that it was a real success. But that was just by genuine turning up persuasion rather than you know we'll come here to cut your head off kind of thing Um, and there must be annual trade fairs annual places where buyers of goods for the northern hemisphere go and surely they could be lobbied in a way that that you know because you've got to say you challenge people head on they'll just run away ignore it or get a lawyer they do Uh, uh, but if you actually sometimes can get in with them and persuade them, you know, they're all, they're all, I mean, ultimately, they're not all kind of arch villains. They're, they're fathers, they're mothers, they're carers, they're, they've got children of their own, you know. You can get to some people sometimes if, if it's treated in the right way and you say, we're not just going to cost you a fortune and take you to court. Yeah. Uh, but there's more to it here. And I wonder, you must, I know you do, Brian, I know you operate in that way as well, but, Tell us a little bit about some success you've come across. I think people need to hear that. Uh, success with sacred trade, you mean? Yeah. Okay, so the, the, the best success is the very first first uh, uh, tri- uh, trial, let's say our pilot, which was a, a chocolatier in the UK who was whose consumers were saying, this slavery in the chocolate is just no good. What are you doing about it? Uh, and... Uh, they looked around at all the different models for, for slave-free chocolate and the companies out there calling themselves slave-free at the moment, which are not, uh, and they decided they needed to do better. Uh, in fact, they, they, they were even approached by a company, uh, and they were told, and so this is this will tell you something about how low the bar is set right now. They were even approached by a company that said, we, we have a, a website that lists uh, uh, ethical uh, chocolate, uh, and if you just fill in this form and pay a fee, you can be on there. <laughs> Oh and, and the form and the form was basically them saying that they don't have any slavery, right? They're, they're ethical, so they're, they're self-statement, so to speak. And that was it. And they were so appalled by that they came to us because we were just starting up. Uh, and, and we said, well, we're, we're on the journey. We've started doing this. It's going to take a little while. And they've hung around for nearly three years waiting for us to get ready uh, to build the solution. And so, so they've started. And so we just finished the baseline assessment for all three tiers of that supply chain. So. The UK chocolatier invited their cocoa processor in Colombia, invited the plantation in the north of Colombia. And then we start, and then we start our process on that, right? So when we finish the baseline assessment for that, the cocoa that's come from that plantation through that processor to the retailer in the, to the maker and retailer in the UK, that's the world's first slave-free cocoa, actually. The first guaranteed slave-free cocoa where it's independently verifiable in the data. And, name, uh, name it, name it. 
Name it. Well, uh, Coco Chocolatier is the company in the UK, in, in Edinburgh, actually. And uh, it's not on the shelves yet. It's not public yet. So this is the first time anyone's ever mentioned it. But it's uh, Coco Chocolatier in the UK, which is a boutique chocolatier. And a fantastic CEO who, who actually gives a damn. Can I say damn? You can say you can say that twice. And Casa Luca in Colombia. Casa Luca is a family-owned chocolate business, cocoa business. They own a very big piece of the Colombian cocoa output, and and you know they. And I, and I think it's partly because they're a family business, right? They've got a, mm-hmm. a, a familial connection to workplaces and attitude and. They're really trying to do things. That's what I was suggesting. You know, you can get to people who have got kind of investment in family of their own. That's what you've got to do, right? You've got to find the person in the right Mm. place at the right time with the heart in the right place. Okay. If you don't find them, you're completely wasting your time. I've wasted my time with thousands of companies. Mm. I even had one wealth management company in in, uh, Geneva being very honest with me, much more honest than most businesses. And they said, look, I'd love to help you, but human rights is just not on the company's agenda. Hmm. Well, look, look, hang on, because we've had just this, I don't know if you took part in it, but there was this um, conference recently, a two-day conference in in the United States, held by the United States, or or initiated by them, in terms of um, uh, ATII, the um, uh, anti-human trafficking kind of organization, but follow the money, is what they're saying, because as you quite rightly said, it's mostly organized crime. So that effectively there are ways for the financial sort of services authorities to track and trace. And um, that's now becoming a kind of like a a light bulb for a a lot of people looking to try and pick up this. But listen, Brian, I want to make sure I get as much into this program as possible because I also want to talk now. I mean, we'll, we'll put, you know. Chocolatier, Coco, or whatever, and the Colombian thing. Chocolatier and Casa Luca, yeah. Yeah, we'll, I'll put them in the text at the front of this podcast that everybody can see again, as well as all the details for how to get to slave free trade. So don't worry about all of that. We'll put all that yeah. in. Uh, and you can have a shout out before we finish anyway. But what I want to now talk to you about is the Freedomer app yeah. that you are trying to create. Would you like yeah. to say a little bit about that? Well, so what we did with, so, so let me put it in context. Uh, we are, what we're building is a, is we call it a distributed human rights intelligence system. So putting that in, in, uh, in, in layman's mm-hmm. terms, we collect the data from workplaces like we did with the cocoa chain, right? The workplace mm-hmm. in Edinburgh, workplace in Bogota, workplace in uh, Nicoclee. So between these three workplaces, we collect data about what's going on in, in real time about the conditions. Yeah. And then we assemble that. Analyze it, look for anomalies, look for coercion or collusion. We look for issues, integrity, test it. Uh, and then it's a distributed system, we, so we have to get it out there, right? I mentioned earlier what we want to do is the consumer in the supermarket looking at a product, we want to provoke a certain behavior. We want to provoke a behavior that is they change their buying preference. That's all, which is, you know, 0.4 of a second they can choose the slave-free chocolate over the other one. That's what we want to provoke. So we distribute the data. So it backs up the product claim. So the, tr- the cocoa is on the shelves. You can scan the bar. You'll be able to scan the barcode and see the full supply chain and human rights performance of the entire chain behind the product. If you want to, right? Not every consumer wants to dig down in the shop as they're, as they're looking. Some just want to take that point four of a second and see the label and change their view. And, and that's fine too. But the Freedom Wrap is, we're now crowdfunding the first phase of the Freedom Wrap. The first phase is so that people can actually just have a say. 
Because I'm getting told by companies constantly when I'm talking to them about this that their consumers don't care. And that's absolute bullshit. They do care. They just don't have a way to communicate that they care. Because boycotts don't work. They're, they're, they're hugely, they're, they're impossible to manage. So companies like, well, I don't want to say any names, uh, big companies making jeans and coffee and chocolate and so on, mm-hmm. they think their consumers don't care because they're not actually listening to their consumers. 67% of consumers want to buy slave-free. They just can't find it. So the Freedom App, the first phase of the Freedom App is a campaigning function. So you can put in your favorite jeans, your favorite coffee, your favorite chocolate, and a campaign is created around it. Sends out to family and friends, sends out to everybody else in the app. And when we've got 10,000 signatures, we can go to the company and say, hey, 10,000 people want your jeans slave free. What are you going to do about it? Or 100,000 if it's successful, right? Let uh, me ask you, let me, let me interrupt thing. you a second, O'Brien. Firstly, I, I, people would have to assume that it's not slave free to actually sign up to a petition, wouldn't they? You have to assume that it's not slave-free, absolutely. 77% of companies have slavery in their supply chain, so the vast majority of things that we're, we're consuming aren't slave-free. That's okay. I mean, I just, I just, I can imagine, a, I can imagine somewhat of a challenge actually saying, well, you're actually kind of putting us on the dock already without knowing if we're slave-free or not, and by getting all these people to sign up, you're making them think we're, we're not slave-free. You know, maybe we're only talking about the other 23%, but you know what I mean. Yeah, well, my, my, well my, and my simple response to that is, well, prove that you're not. Okay. Uh, you and, must have something. I mean, I mean, I suppose you must have evidence have, already. And, to start and if they have another, and if they have another way of proving that they're slave-free, well, great. Yeah. yeah. It'd be brilliant in shops, wouldn't it, if actual sort of big supermarkets actually could put up, as best to our best knowledge, this is slave-free produce. At least to start with, you know, whilst yeah. people like you are actually pursuing the kind of pro- the project that you have underway there. The Freedom or app, that's, that's something we must remember. I'll put all the details up at the front as well. But Great. listen, um, how would um, the crowdfunding, how do people want to give you, want to support you? How do they do it? Uh, on the we, we Make It website, so we make it.org. Uh, we make it.com, I think also works. Uh, you'll find the, the, the slave free trade freedom wrap campaign there. Uh, and we're not asking, we're not looking for a lot of money because we've already designed the app. The design is all done. Now we're just looking for the money to pay for coding. Okay. We have to develop it. Um, we'll code it in house if we don't get the, the, the money from the campaign, but it'll just take eight months instead of two. Mm. I'd rather get it into consumers' hands so we can start talking. Okay, right. So it's We Make It, did you see? We Make It, yes. Dot com or dot co, we want either or? Uh, I, th- I think dot com. Okay, we make it dot com. And um, not much to go, but you've got a time deadline with all these crowdfunding things, yeah. haven't you? It's, it's we make it dot com, yeah. Hmm. You've only got uh, yeah, we have, uh, we have, uh, we're, it's only open for the next uh, 30 days. Right, okay. All right. uh, we're, we're halfway to our target right now, so anybody who can jump in and help us would be fantastic. Right. Every little bit counts. No, no. Message uh, clear and understood. Now, talk to me a little bit about this, because I've been talking to other people in the more the global, if you like, anti-human trafficking, anti-slavery kind of movements. Um, I mean, and as you well know yourself, there's an awful lot of uh, groups, organizations, not-for-profits, goodness knows what else, 
um, victim yeah. groups, etc., survivor groups, I should say, um, yeah. who all compete um, in some way or another for people's attention. They obviously share some of the same values, but they do compete for attention. Yeah. There is a lot of talk that, you know, better together in terms of influence rather than a scattering, a sort of shotgun scattering of small um, of small protest groups. But how, yeah. how, have you, how do you see the landscape at the moment in terms of the, the global kind of um, way that this is being tackled? Well, look, there, there are hundreds of thousands of non-profit organizations around the world trying to do something about this in their different capacities and their different styles. Uh, you know, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big problem and there are many different ways to confront it. Uh, the 90% of those organizations are working on what I call the supply side. So they're working on uh, rehabilitation of victims or identification of victims, uh, awareness raising campaigns, uh, uh, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, now, they are a function. I mean, we are a, almost any community like this is a function of its funding, if I can say. And a, a, a as, as a good parallel to business, for anybody who understands business, with development assistance consulting, right, the companies that go out there and do uh, projects in the Philippines on, on on sex tourism or they go and do a project in, in the Andes on commercial uh, improvement of small to medium-sized business or whatever, development assistance, aid money, uh, the way the aid money is dispersed defines this, the, the, the look or the, the, the landscape of the businesses that deal with it. So in a, so where the donors, uh, where the donor is a big donor that gives big projects and big sums, it's big business is dealing with it. Where the donor is giving out lots and lots of small amounts of money, then it's only small players can act in that space. It's just a function of the funding. And it's the same in the, in the non-profit world. We are a, we're the, we're the result of the availability of funding. So where we're all competing and we're all small organisations. It's because that's all that can survive. And there's no, there's, there's no kind of um, pulling together organisation at the moment, as far as you're aware, anywhere uh, around the globe that tries to kind of um, harness all these small groups together in any way. No, I think the, I think the, the, the approaches are so disparate, and there are some philosophical schisms in the field. Mm. Uh, especially if you're talking about trafficking for sexual exploitation, there's one, there's a schism there right down the middle that divides the, the global mm. community in half completely. And they will never collaborate together. They've got a philosophical foundational difference. Mm. Uh, and so there's these, there's these differences of view. And then how would you get a supply side or a demand side organization working together? Uh, you know, there are, there's space for collaboration and I think there are some umbrella groups or have been some efforts to create umbrella groups, but the umbrella groups have trouble uh, bridging the gaps between organizations' perspectives, mm. approaches, funding lines, because then it becomes competitive, right? As soon as money comes to the table, sharp elbows come out. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a, and the vast majority of money goes to orthodoxy, right? So there's no money going into changing the way we do things. There's very little money given to innovation in this space. The vast majority of money, I, I, I you know, I'd have to do a study of it, but I would say 95% of the global money that goes into counter-trafficking and counter-slavery is going into orthodox approaches. Okay. Not taking it up at all. Uh, and there's a kind of, there's almost a kind of a mafia has been created within the global anti-slavery, anti-trafficking world of these people with the money bags investing in orthodoxy because that's what gets them their money. Yeah. 
Well, that's no, that, it's not sadly ridiculous. that is human nature. I can you can understand that, but I think yeah, you're but quite right. And ultimately, self-defeating. No, I know. I get yeah. it. I get it. Listen, Brian, um, you wouldn't believe this, but we've been talking for 17 hours. No, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> but, but but look, you've got a few minutes, right? I want you to use them as wisely as you wish in the last, you know, just as messages to people listening to this. Because um, then I think we'll have you on again. There's no question of that, because I, I've got a feeling there's momentum coming here. So two minutes, all right? Uh, and just okay. get, what's your message? Now, the people listening to this are probably everything ranging from kind of social care professionals, law enforcement professionals, um, health professionals, education professionals, whatever. But a massive amount, too, of other citizens, uh, you know, who will be interested, who are the shoppers, they're the buyers, whatever. So a couple of minutes, what, what, what kind of message would you like to put out to people? And give another shout-out for your crowdfunding at the same time. Okay. Uh, my, my single most important message, I think, is that the single greatest obstacle to us ending modern slavery, and I'm very careful about my language there, ending modern slavery, not just tackling it, not just addressing it, but ending it, uh, is the, the greatest obstacle is the belief that someone else is fixing it. Because, to be frank, someone else is not fixing it. The vast, as I said before, 95% of the money that is spent, 95% of the action that is taken on modern slavery is not going to end it. Supply-side action cannot and something. We've seen that with narcotics, we've seen that with terror, we see it also with human trafficking and slavery. So demand-side action is the only way to end something like this. It's a social phenomenon. And for that, we need to think differently. Thinking differently means actually crowdsourcing it. Get every single person that we can to change their buying preferences, whether they're, that's a public purchasing preference or a corporate buyer preference or an investor preference, or a consumer preference. Now, all of these are consumers of modern slavery. Let's talk to that audience. Micro-actions by all of the individuals in this scheme takes no thought, takes very little action, takes no money, just some changing of buying preferences. And that is how we can end modern slavery. Nothing else has potential. Now, the the two things quickly then. The... um Crowdfunding is where? It's, what we, must, we make it. We make it. Com. We make it. Com. And Slave Free Trade's website is slavefreetrade.org. Dot org, where there will be examples. Because that one thing we didn't actually take too much of is actually like a, a hardcore current example of children. But we know what we're talking about. But it's just good to actually get that. Whether it's the clothing industry, the food industry or whatever, uh, there are, as you said, that enormous amount of children, did you say, a hundred and how many million? 152 million. That have been actually identified as working in slave conditions to actually produce goods for our pleasure. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Very important we do something, and we can all do something, but we need to do it all together. I know, I know, and that's what, well, we're, we're all going to try and, you know, make a little step towards that. So, look, Brian Islin, thank you very much indeed for being a guest on the Social World podcast today. And as I said, I'm sure we're going to talk again in the not too distant future. So thanks very much for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Dave. It was a real pleasure to be here.